Good morning. You're wondering, who's that guy? I know. My name is Steve Smith. My wife, Laura, and I moved here four months ago from the great state of New Hampshire. Yes. And uh, we've been, we had an opportunity to, we moved into uh, the North Lake Argyle um, area after, thank you, thank you, after spending two months living with Todd and Patty Assad. I could tell you all sorts of things, but you know, I'm not going to do that now at this time, especially about Patty, but nevertheless, we're not going to do that. So, but you might know me better by another name. I am Jeff's dad. Jeff and Kelly Smith lead the uh, campus ministry in the north, and Jeff is my son and has been all of his life. <laughs> my wife and I became Christians in Boston 32 years ago, and uh, we've been in Boston and Denver and Phoenix and L.A. and San Diego and back in New Hampshire. Actually, we were in Denver, Phoenix, L.A. and San Diego all in the same year by the 24th of August. <laughs> Think about that for a moment. But uh, it is great to be with you guys and get an opportunity to speak to you. Uh, I'm going to be doing a lesson today entitled Tithing and Giving. Now before we do that, we realize, of course, that we're getting ready to celebrate Thanksgiving. There's something very important that you need to know about Thanksgiving. Usually Thanksgiving is a time we get together with family, right? And I don't know if your family is like my family. And I don't mean my kids and my grandchildren. I mean my sibling and my dad and so forth. And oftentimes, those types of family gatherings can be a bit contentious, let's just say. Okay? So the rule of thumb is what? The rule of thumb is, at these kinds of gatherings, we don't talk about religion, we don't talk about money, and we don't talk about politics. But this family gathering, we're going to talk about religion, and we're going to talk about money. And if you want to talk to me about politics, come to my house. I have plenty of wine. That way we can sit down and have that discussion, right? So that's important you need to know. One of the things that I'm going to try to do with you this morning, I'm going to attempt to change your vocabulary. I am going to take a word out of your vocabulary and insist that you never use it again. With me so far? Now, let's talk about this. Here's some interesting facts. I'm a numbers guy. I like facts. 60% of Jesus' parables involve money. You know how I know that? I counted them. <laughs> One day I went through and counted them all up, and it was 60% of the parables. One in every eight gospel verses talks about money. And if you think about that, that makes sense, right? Because the gospel is about Jesus, but it's also about life. What in life do we talk about more than money? Right? So if the gospels talk so much about money, is it okay if we have a conversation in church about money? Are you okay with that this morning? Because again, I'm going to try to help you change your thinking and your mindset today. All right, everybody with me? So you know what I forgot? I am... My lessons. No, I like to... I, yeah. So, what is tithing? The word tithe simply means a tenth. Part of something given or paid is a contribution. 
or compulsory tax to the government. Tithing does not equal contribution. The word I am going to ask you to take out of your vocabulary and rid yourself of is the word tithing. Tithing has its origins in the, in, in the Old Testament and deals with agriculture and farming, never about salaries and so forth. Okay? So what is it with tithing? You know, I've heard people say all sorts of things about tithing. If you've said them recently, don't worry, I don't hold it against you. But I've heard people say, all, you know, I've heard people say, you ever heard this one before? Well, today I paid my tithe. If you say that in my presence, it will not be good. We don't pay God anything. We give. We don't pay. And secondly, I got a feeling that what you think a tithe is and what the Bible says a tithe is are different. Let's talk about what Old Testament tithing is. Here are some scriptures in the, in the Bible about tithing. Numbers 18, verse 24. From the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore I have said of them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. So they didn't, the, the Levites, the priests, they didn't own any land. So God said, We're gonna, I want all of the people to take a tenth of their income and give it to the Levites to support them. There's your 10%. But wait, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 and following. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord God always. Okay, so now we have a, a tithe for the Levites. But we also have a tithe for all the festivals, the three major festivals of the year for worshiping God. Two tithes, 10%, 10%, wait. Deuteronomy chapter 14 again, verse 28. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. So every three years you take another tithe. And bring it to the town, and the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who is within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands that you do. Sorry to get all mathy on you here, but 10% plus 10% plus one every three years is another 3.3%. We're at 23 and a third percent. But wait, there's more. During the harvest, in Leviticus 19, the Bible tells the Jews, so during the harvest, make sure you don't harvest out to the edges of the field so the poor people can come and reap from those edges so they can eat. Exodus chapter 23, verse 10, every seventh year, don't harvest anything from your field so the poor, it's good for the soil, but also so the poor can eat from the land. Exodus 30, annually, the men over the age of 20 pay a temple tax. So now you add up the 23, 3rd% plus more, plus more, Plus more. We're in the 25, 30, 35%. Now, if you would like to practice Old Testament giving, I'm sure no one in the leadership of the church would mind. Okay? And these calculations are based on the involuntary 
requirements of the Old Testament and has nothing to do with sin offerings and thank offerings and wave offerings and so forth. You follow me so far? So if you want to use the word tithe properly as if we give like the Old Testament Jews did, bring your checkbook. Because we're talking about 35% or more. You with me? Okay. The Bible does not teach that the people of God gave Old Test- gave 10% under the Old Testament. They gave way more. But as we are not bound to Sabbath laws or to food laws about we can- what we can and can't eat, Christians are not bound to follow Old Testament law, especially when it do- comes to tithing. This is getting dangerous, isn't it? The New Testament does not discuss tithing as a Christian requirement. In fact, you can go back and do some research about tithing in the U.S. Christian churches, and you go back about to the 1860s, is where this became a concept again. I think, as somebody who works in church finances, that this is a good thing. Because giving should be from the heart, not an obligation. So it's that time of year again where we go out and buy a whole bunch of gifts for people, right? Some gifts that you buy are for people that you don't necessarily want to give a gift to. But unfortunately, if you don't give them a gift, there's going to be a crisis And so you buy them a gift anyway. Right? No? You guys? No, we we do that, right? So here's the deal about that. Sometimes I'll give some. So we had a couple over for dinner a couple of weeks ago. And we we drink a lot of, we serve wine at my house. I used to be in the wine business. And so we we drink a fair amount of wine at my house. And, um, And so one of the things I did is at the end, they liked a bottle, they liked this wine. So I gave them a bottle of wine. And the response is, You don't have to do that. Anybody ever got that when you give somebody a gift? You didn't have to do that. And my response, and you feel free to use this one. If I had to do it, it wouldn't be a gift. Go ahead. You can put that one. You can use that one. I hate that. Of course, I I did it because I wanted to. Not because I had to. So, now we're out in no man's land. There are no requirements other than to be sacrificial. So what do we do? You see, before we go and I I show you the rest of the scriptures, this is really what true Christianity is about. It's being motivated from the heart. You know, Todd said something this morning, interestingly, earlier, and I totally agree with, which is unusual. (laughs) And he said that if you're doing things Because you're supposed to, you will fail. Any of us who have been Christians for a long time know exactly what that means. That means if I'm doing it because I'm supposed to do this, I'm supposed to, and you know, one day you go, this is dumb. Why am I doing this? The idea, not only behind giving, but behind everything we do as a Christian, is are we motivated from 
the heart. So why do we do this? Why should we give? Giving is not for God. Giving is not for God. It's for us. Look at Matthew chapter 14. Turn to Matthew 14, starting in verse 13. This is an interesting story. You know, I'm one of those people who likes reading his Bible and, 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 go, and looking at things kind of oddly, like sideways. Like if I was standing watching Jesus and his disciples interacting, but not from the point of Jesus and not from the point of the disciples, but sort of from just watching, what would I see? So here's one for you. So Matthew 14 and verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, uh, This is a desolate place, and uh, the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves, because they were really compassionate people. But they were practical. That's a practical thing. But Jesus said, They need to go... It wasn't that funny, but anyway, they need to go, wow, they need to go away, you give them something to eat. They said to him, we only have five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces, Left over, and those who were who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Okay, big crowd. Five thousand men, women and children. How many people? Twenty thousand? Ten thousand? More than five thousand? Big crowd of people. Jesus and the twelve and five, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand people. So if you are one of the crowd. Unless you had a front row seat, this miracle just completely, you, you, you have no idea what had just happened. Okay, so here's the deal. So Jesus is traveling around, and he's traveling around Galilee. Now, interesting little, little history about Galilee is that Galilee had a roughly 204 towns and villages with a population of 15,000 people or more. That's way more people than where I live in North Lake. There were people everywhere. And they were following him and pestering him and asking questions and begging for healings and so forth. And so Jesus got tired. And so he decided to head to the other side of the lake to rest and to pray and, of course, to eat. And so the followers, being very persistent people that they are, they decided to follow him everywhere. And so they followed him to the other side of the lake. But Jesus being unfailingly compassionate, decide, okay, listen, we just got to set aside all that we had to do and take care of these people and feed them spiritually and then feed them physically. And Jesus prayed, offered up these five loaves and two fish, and Jesus prayed and fed the crowd. Now, if you're in the back, not of this room, but of the crowd of 20,000 people, right, you have no idea what happened. You just think, wow, these guys brought a lot of food with them. Man. Right? The only thing you see really are, are, you know, the few people up front might have noticed what happened. But most people have no idea. This miracle wasn't for the crowd, other than the fact that they got fed. This miracle was for the disciples to learn 
to be giving. You see, Jesus knew that giving is something that you've got to teach and implore and encourage and challenge. And, And so Jesus decided to teach his disciples about giving. In fact, after they distributed all the food, then he had them go and pick up all the leftovers that teach them even more about giving. Look at these Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper, which that doesn't make financial sense, but it makes sense to us, right? A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. People curse the one who hoards grain, but pray God's blessing on the one who is willing to sell. God knows. I mean, when our kids are little, right? I remember when Jeffrey was little, and there were stories about that too, but that's another time. But when when, when kids are little, we love it when they finally learn to be giving, right? We are over, I mean, you've seen those kids, right? Your children would never, ever, ever be selfish. I know that. (laughs) Never. But others, other people's children would be selfish. And you see it, and you see, you know, you see that, and it's like, ooh. But when you see children learn giving, and because we teach it to them over and over and over again, right? Well, God is trying to teach us to be the same because he knows that we ourselves will be refreshed if we refresh others. So giving, the reason we, one of the reasons that God wants us to give, not only of our time and of our, you know, everything, but also of our money, is because he knows it's good for the soul. God doesn't need our money. Heaven does not have currency. We help others who are in need spiritually. We help others who are in need physically. That's one of the reasons that we give. Point number two. Giving helps us overcome materialism. Now, maybe this is something that you do. You're you're reading a passage, right? And there's a couple of verses in that passage that make absolutely no sense whatsoever. What do you do? Keep reading. Is that what we mostly do? Okay, well, I don't really, okay, let's just keep going. I'm sure there's some good stuff somewhere else. So I was doing that one day, and there's a passage that I came across, and, and, and I read it, and then I stopped and went, okay, I've read this passage 500 times. I have absolutely no idea what that verse means. So let's figure it out together. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, verse 19. Somebody with me so far? Not bored to death yet. Okay, good. All right. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin, vermin. I'm glad we started using the word vermin again. Moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, well, that's easy. I get that. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Okay, let's just keep reading. No one can serve two masters. 
Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I get that. That makes sense. You can't serve God. Money can't be your God. We understand that, right? So let's just, no, wait. What about that stanza there in the middle? Is he talking about seeing an optometrist? Well, optometry hadn't quite been invented yet, so no. Okay, so how do we figure out what this verse means? All right, let's use some, some basic Bible study tools. Write this one down. If you want to learn how to understand the Bible, learn these three words. Context is king. That's not funny. It's true. I mean, it is true. People, they got guys over here on the right just laugh at everything. What is that about? Oh, uh, I know what it is. I know what it is. So sometimes the <clears throat> speakers who come up here, you know, you have to laugh because, I mean, their jokes aren't very good. But I, I get that. I mean, so anyway. Other speakers. Yeah, other speakers. That's what I mean. But anyway, so there's this passage, and it doesn't make any sense. Context is king. What's the context of the passage? Well, the first, right above it, is this passage about money, right? It's about, about n- not having your treasures on earth, but your treasures in heaven. About money and priority, Okay. And the passage right after that is about not serving two masters, about not serving money over God. It's about money and priority. So if the passage before it and the passage are about, about after it are about the very same thing, I guarantee you that the passage in the middle is about that. So what's he talking about? Let's read it again. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Well, what do your eyes do? You see. You focus captures your attention, right? I believe this passage is talking about what you focus on, what you desire. You know, we talk about things that we do with our eyes as sinful. We talk about lust as being sinful, right? Right? But you know, Ephesians 5 and verse 3 says that greed is idolatry. Now, that's not a passage we hear very much. Greed. You see, a problem with a lot of... You see, we live in a country that's all about materialism. You know, it's funny moving to a new state in a new place, right? Because you get to see the commercials that they show locally. Furniture commercials and car commercials. Every place, they're just really crazy, right? But they, they try to capture your attention, Okay? So, what is it that captures your attention? Are you captivated by the things that you want? Are we captivated by material things? This is what Jesus is talking about here. And the interesting thing is, we don't have to be rich to struggle with greed. Do we? Being rich in life does not, you know... Being rich or being poor doesn't mean you're, you know, people, poor people, how can they struggle with greed? Trust me. If you've been to poor countries, you realize they do too. We live in a world that loves money. I can say to you today that I am the richest man that you know. You know how I know that? Because I have a God who loves me. I have a wife who loves me. I have children who love me. I have grandchildren who love me. I have brothers and sisters who love me. 
What more do I really need than that? Isn't that what makes us rich? You see, giving helps us overcome the material world because it helps us put our priorities in order, doesn't it? It's good for the heart. It's good for the soul. I was, I was in a meeting the other day, and somebody said something uh, about missions, about giving to missions. And I work with a lot of churches around the country, and not all of them participate in giving to missions outside of their local area. And I am the kind of person, I'm saying, you know what, we, we need to give to others, not even just in our own church, but to others as well, because it's good for the soul. Because there, there are churches, say, for example, in Europe, and in, or there are cities in Europe and in Russia, and, and, and these places that don't have, they can't afford anybody to be on staff, and yet millions of people live in those cities, right? It's good for the soul for us to give. Giving helps us overcome the, all the material trappings that we face every moment of every day, and we do. Okay? Point number three, giving helps promote the gospel. I'm going to say something here that, that I can say that other people can't say. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is one of my favorite things. So Paul is preaching to the, Cor- the church in Corinth, and Paul is defending his job. People have said, you're not really an apostle. Why should people support you? Who do you think you are? And so Paul writes a letter to the church in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians 9, he essentially spends the whole chapter defending himself. Okay? He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense. The apostle Paul defending himself to critics. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to... To food and drink, don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us as, as the other apostles and the Lord's brother and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who have to work for a living? Who serves at a soldier's at his own serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Does the law say the same? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses: Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about the oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this to us, says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes, threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we, now this is Paul talking to the church in Corinth that he started, that he birthed, that he baptized the leaders. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a matter of material, reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we didn't use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel. Don't you know, here it comes, don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in what is altered at the, on the offer, offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord commands that those who preach the gospel should earn their living from the gospel. are some things that the Lord commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Go and make disciples of all nations. We got a million of them. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's one you may never have thought of. 
the Lord, and of course when you talk about the Lord here, you're referring to Jesus, commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. By the way, just so you know, that the things that are being spoken of today are merely the views of the speaker and not necessarily the views of the uh, leadership of the church. I just want that disclaimer out there in case you needed to know. I was not instructed in any way to make this presentation. These are my convictions. Giving advances the gospel. We pay our people, our staff, the Assads and the Gowers and the Smiths and so on. And the Smith and all these different people. We pay them to advance, the Santellans, we pay them to advance the gospel. And we don't apologize for that. I was talking to a woman, a Jewish woman from Boston, on a plane. We talked for hours. This is uh, six months ago. And we were talking about, I told her what I did for a living, and, and so we were talking, and, and she works with the synagogues in, in Boston to help them raise funding so they can stay open. Because, honestly, you know, it's a dwindling population in that particular religion. And I told her that we use, we don't really, so we're kind of building funds and building. I said, you know, a lot of our churches don't have buildings. She looks at me like, what, what do you mean? I said, we put our money into people so the, so the gospel can go out. And she was amazed. She was like, that's fantastic. And she was like losing her mind on the plane. She was like, this is so cool. Wow. But, you know, we take that for granted. But for other people, there's, you know, traditional type churches are spending 50, 60, 70 percent of their budget on a building. That building will never save anyone's soul. This is how we spend our money. And I say it completely unapologetically. And one of the reasons I say it is because of this verse. The Lord commanded that those who preach the gospel should make their living from the gospel. I want you to the Lord commanded that. Now, Paul is making his case for support. Interesting thing about Paul's ministry is that when Paul was starting a church, he did not take money from that church. You see this pattern over and over again, and you might not look for it because you're but because of what I do, I find it interesting. But he would ask for support for churches that he, from, he, from which he already started after he had left them. Because that's why he says, listen, I didn't take advantage of this with you while I was there. Paul wasn't in it for the money, but he needs to carry on the work. You know, I, uh, I was in the ministry for five and a half years, and I was full-time with the church as in administration for another 13. Let me tell you something. It is a difficult job. It is a difficult job, and we need to hold up the people who do that job. Now, let's talk about practicals. Let's get practical so we can get this thing, land this plane here. Giving should be willing, done willingly, done cheerfully, and done sacrificially. Are you giving sacrificially? You know, um, the Northwest region, as Todd mentioned earlier, is known for its giving. We give like crazy. We have a missions contribution, we blow out a missions contribution. We have a, you know, we blow out our weekly budget, and that's awesome. And that's really great. But I want to talk to the individual and not to the group. Are you involved? Are you involved? Are you involved financially? 
Now the teens and the campus students are barely trying. I'm not talking to you. Do what you, do what, do what you can, but grow, grow up, go in the ministry, grow up, get great jobs, but not you. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking to the adults. And I know some of you don't la- act. I'm talking to my family group. Some of you don't act like adults, but I'm going to talk to you anyway, okay? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Are you involved? Because I know for a fact that we have a lot of people who give a ton of money, and I also know for a fact that we have a lot of people, or some people certainly who don't give at all, or give very, very little, or well below, you know, their means are well, well beyond what they're giving. I think this is a great thing about this lesson about if we eliminate the concept of tithing, and I'm asking you never to use that word again, but if we eliminate the, other than tell people not, don't use that word, but if we eliminate the concept of tithing that's once left, you know, that what's left is the idea that there's no minimum requirement for giving. There's also no maximum requirement for giving either. So if you want to give way more, that's okay too. And I think sometimes as people, we like guidelines, right? Well, what do I have to do? What's the minimum requirement I need to do to meet this particular thing to make God happy? If, you, if you've been a Christian for a while, you realize it doesn't work that way. Right? Remember those little things that your kids made? I mean, we got this little hand thing made out of pottery thing that Jeff did when he was like four. It still occupies a very prominent place in our house, even though it has absolutely no value financially. But it has emotional value, Right? Are we giving? Are we involved? All of us need to participate. We give because we've been given to. First and foremost, we've been given the greatest gift of all, our salvation. Secondly, God has provided for us. And you say, well, bro, I'm, I'm struggling financially. Trust me when I tell you that you're doing way better than everybody else in a third world country, pretty much. Almost everybody. Okay, we're rich even when we think we're poor, primarily, usually. But God, like I said at the beginning, when we teach our kids to give, God is doing the same with us. And he wants to see if we will respond as well. So this morning, here's the deal. Giving should come from the heart. Not from an Old Testament rule that you've been misapplying all these years, but from the heart. So my question to you this morning is, Is your heart moved enough to give? And watch this video.
One last thing I want to leave you with. We're very privileged in the way we get to give. We get to give, there's something that video said, we get to give to something that's bigger than ourselves. I don't know about you, but we find all sorts of ways to give away our money, don't we? My daughter is getting married in February. And somebody said to me yesterday, congratulations that your daughter's getting married in February. I said, oh, yeah, congratulations. You should see the bills. <laughs> I got a bill for a sash. Sash. Just a little teeny thin little belt that goes around the wedding dress. Sash. $525 for a little teeny sash. Like, ha! Huh? I'm just sitting in my office and pay it. We get to give to something much greater. We get to give to something that, that advances the gospel. We get to give to something that changes people's lives. It's not just for taxes. It's not just for our mortgage. It's not just for our enjoyment, for our comfort, and for our sustaining. It's for something bigger. And to me, that is just such an amazing thing that we get to do. And ultimately, the reason we give, overarching everything else, is Jesus. We give because he first gave to us. And this morning, we're going to pray for our communion. We're going to pray for the bread, and we're going to pray for the wine. And uh, I pray that we remember that as we uh, take communion this morning. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for you. We're grateful that you love us enough to not require of us, but to ask of us. And, and God, I pray that our hearts will move this morning, that we'll take the shackles off, of, of the Old Testament law that I think so many of people live under and realize that we can do so much more from you if we do so from the heart. God, in the same way, we're so grateful. Jesus, we are so grateful that you were willing to sacrifice yourself for us. And we pray this morning that as we take the bread and as we take the wine that represents your body and your blood, God, that we'll remember that that is the greatest gift ever given and nothing that we can do can repay that gift, God, that we can only respond to it. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.